Please have a seat. In the middle of our lives, we often cannot see or tell what God is up to. And I know that that can be frustrating and faith-testing, especially in the midst of, of real hardships. We struggle to, with the idea that God is up to anything, or in the midst of our constant digital distraction. It's hard to notice much of anything beyond our screens, let alone God's activity. Or in the midst of good times, we don't feel the acute need for God, and so we can ignore Him. We don't pay attention to Him. In any life situation, really, we can often miss, ignore, misidentify, doubt, or dismiss what God is doing. Meanwhile, I believe God's Word tells us that He is intimately and continually at work in our lives in ways that are often beyond what we can see or are aware of. And that might sound like small comfort, but it is crucial to cling to if our faith is to be strong. As one of my favorite quotes ever so it's from John Piper, it says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. <laughs> so hold on, because the story isn't over yet. And I guarantee you that God is up to something good. I invite you to turn to the final part of the story of Ruth with me at this time. Ruth chapter 4. Over the last three weeks, we followed the story of Ruth together and her mother-in-law, Naomi, as they walked through terrible tragedy over a nightmarish decade in Moab, as they returned to Naomi's home in Bethlehem, and Ruth got to work supporting them. And then as, they, as Ruth ended up in the fields of the man, Boaz, who showed remarkable kindness to her and who was a redeemer of theirs, someone who was responsible to, to care for their family in need. And in chapter 3, what we saw last week, Naomi tried to set Ruth up with Boaz. And Ruth boldly, pro boldly proposed marriage to him. And delighted, Boaz responded favorably. He's like, you could have had your pick of any guy out there. I'd love to marry you. However, there is a redeemer who is nearer than I. In other words, someone, who someone else who had a prior right to redeem Naomi's family before him. So Boaz told Ruth, just, we'll sort this out tomorrow, but you will be redeemed soon and married soon. We see through it all that God had been at work to provide food for them. And it appears he's about to provide family too, either with Boaz or with this other guy. But we're all team Boaz, right? <laughs> Even if we haven't met the other guy yet, we just know he can't be right for Ruth. <laughs> but there's tension right here at this moment in the story. There's tension in the unknown. 
Which guy is going to end up as Ruth's man? Well, just like Naomi assumed, Boaz got right to work the next morning. So in the last verse of chapter 3, Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And it continues in chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Now the city gate was like a town square, market, civic center, and courthouse all rolled into one. It's where legal transactions took place, where people were constantly coming and going, this constant hub of activity, and it was the best place to find this other guy. So Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So what's happening here is, is Boaz is convening a legal assembly to, to take care of some business. But first, he sees this other guy strolling along and calls him over to join him. Come, friends, sit down here. Now, interestingly, we are never given this guy's name which seems to be intentional. When Boaz addresses him, he calls him the Hebrew equivalent of Mr. So-and-so. Now, Boaz certainly knew the guy's name and likely addressed him by name in court. So it seems like the author is intentionally substituting the name to downplay this guy's role in the story. Why? Well, maybe he wanted to, maybe they wanted to spare the man's descendants embarrassment. Or maybe his namelessness implied shame or judgment. Like, whoever refuses to preserve another man's name doesn't deserve his own in the story. Whatever the case, this seems to tell us in the long run, he's insignificant. He's Mr. So-and-so. Now, in Boaz's actions here, as Boaz's actions as a redeemer really throughout, we've been seeing examples of what redeemers did, as well as shadows of what Jesus does for us as our redeemer. And in this chapter, we see in story form what it means for redemption to be accomplished Redemption to be accomplished. Now, if redeem and redemption, if they sound like confusing terms to you, to redeem simply means to buy, purchase, or set free by paying a price. To buy, purchase, or set free by paying a price. And redemption in that day usually involved saving someone from financial troubles. Now, you might sometimes hear Christians refer to history as the story of redemption. And that's because ever since we fell into sin at the beginning, God has been working to set us free from sin and its consequences by paying a price. And that's redemption. But the first thing I think we learned from today's story is that redemption must be accomplished the right way. Redemption, in order to succeed, must be accomplished or the right or the righteous, you could say, way. You might wonder, like, why would Boaz risk losing Ruth by going through this whole legal process? 
Well, to do otherwise would have been a miscarriage of justice, a shirking of the law. So Boaz, a, a righteous man, as we have seen, lays out the situation for the peoples he's assembled. In verse 3 he says, Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So in essence, Boaz says something like, Naomi owns a property that was her late husband's, and she needs to sell it in order to live off the money from it. However, if a redeemer were able to buy it from her, if a redeemer, a family kinsman redeemer were to buy it, it would keep it in the family. The buyer then would get to add the field along with its annual crops to their assets. And you, my friends, are first in line. So, you interested in buying it? Now, in that day, owning land was everything. Because land produced food and income for generations. And it would easily pay itself off. So, this was a can't-miss deal. A no-brainer. A no-risk, can't-lose investment. All Mr. So-and-so had to do was bring Naomi under his care to make sure that she was provided for. And since Naomi was an older widow, past child-rearing age, there was no risk that she would someday have a child who would inherit the field later on and take it from him. Bonus, he'd enhance his reputation in the community by doing this really respected civic duty of his. It was a golden opportunity. And Boaz lays it all out for him on a silver platter. What was Boaz thinking? Right? Doesn't he want to be the Redeemer? Well, like, what was he thinking? Of course, Mr. Other Guy instantly agrees. <laughs> Says, I will redeem it. Sure. Ah. He accepted to our dismay. We don't want Mr. Who Cares to redeem. We want Boaz. Imagine if Ruth and Naomi had snuck into the growing crowd by this time. Just how disappointed or upset would they be? But notice something. This setback in the story is caused by what? By Boaz doing the right thing. Righteousness seemed to be messing everything up for them. And listen, sometimes in our lives, difficulties will not come because we are sinful or stupid, but because we're doing the right thing. Like righteousness may mess things up. That doesn't mean it's foolish to be righteous. Or that we should just give up on following God's ways because it's not working for us. It may actually mean that you are 
precisely where God wants you to be. That he wants to teach you and transform you through the trials. And that it will only make his redemption, in the end, that much more of an amazing reversal. But at this point in the story, we're thinking, Boaz just messed up big time. He just lost Ruth. Thankfully, however, this was all part of a clever plan. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Oh, by the way, you do realize that Naomi has this daughter-in-law who is married to her son, and whoever redeems Naomi will have the responsibility to marry Ruth. And that way, she can have children who can keep the land and the family. That's what it meant when he said to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Why was this so important? Well, for Israelites in that day, it wasn't only land that was everything, so was your name. And if your name died off because you didn't have descendants, not only would you lose your land, you'd lose your legacy altogether. It basically amounted to personal annihilation. It was an unthinkable tragedy for them. But do you get what Boaz is doing here? It's like, oh, I forgot to mention just one small detail. You, would have, you wouldn't only have to care for an aging Naomi who could die off soon. Ruth comes with a package deal. She'll be around for a while. And she could have kids. And yes, you'd be responsible to give her kids. And take care of those kids. And make sure that those kids eventually inherit the land that you're buying now. All of a sudden, the investment is not nearly as cut and dried or as attractive as it sounded at first. But none of this changes anything, right? You're still good to go? I picture Mr. Nameless having the clenched teeth face emoji right now. Whew. That complicates things. Hmm. I can't do it. Look at verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he says if he went ahead, it would impair or endanger or jeopardize his own inheritance. Maybe he was married already. Maybe he had kids already who were already set to inherit from him. Whatever the case, if he bought this land with his money, it would take away from what his heirs would receive later on. And they wouldn't get to keep any of the new property. That would go to Ruth's son, not to mention having additional mouths to feed now with a new wife and more children, or the fact that new heirs could have a partial claim to his current estate, diluting it further. So no matter how much of a, a, a catch Ruth was or was not in his eyes, that would be too costly for him. And he could probably tell that Boaz was wanting to do this anyway. So he goes, it's okay, you do it yourself. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Pastor David Platt explains that in order to redeem, a redeemer needed three things. The right to redeem, the resources to redeem, and the resolve to redeem. And in this story, we can identify Boaz as having all three of these things. The other guy had the right and the resources, but lacked the resolve. So these next verses explain how they wrapped up the legal transaction. Verse 7 and 8 says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. This is kind of like us getting someone's signature on a legal document. Okay, if anyone ever came along and questioned Boaz's claim on Naomi's estate, he could pull out this sandal for Mr. Insignificant as proof of purchase. And the, but the, the clear implication of this whole section so far is that Boaz did it right. Redemption had to be accomplished the right way. And on a much grander scale, Jesus did it all right too. He knew exactly what was demanded to save us from sin and death and hell and the devil. Did Jesus have the right to redeem? Yes, only a human could pay for humanity's sin. So he became one of us by taking on our flesh and blood as, uh, you could say, a kinsman to us. He sought to fulfill all righteousness, and he did. Now, did Jesus have the resources or the ability to redeem? Of course he did. As God in the flesh, he still had all power and all authority in heaven and earth. He also had his precious and perfect blood, the price that sin demanded. And then the big question, did Jesus have the resolve to redeem us? Absolutely. He did it. Like he, his unbelievable, inexplicable love for us compelled him all the way to Calvary. He resolved to go to the cross and he went to the cross, redeeming his people. It's a done deal. Ephesians 1 testifies that in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That's redemption accomplished. Praise the Lord. And I ask today, have you been redeemed? Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ? Believe it or not, you can receive this wonderful redemption today. You can have your sins forgiven, your debt paid, and your hell taken away. And if you feel the need for that, I urge you to to reach out and receive this redemption here and now. All it takes, the Bible says, is faith. Faith that it's true and faith that Christ will save you, putting our trust in him to do so. And if you need to talk this through or need help with what to do, please just let us know. We'd love to help you out with this. 
But I think this, our story today can actually help us know also how to respond to redemption being accomplished in the actions of Boaz, Ruth, and all those who witnessed everything happen here. See, redemption is to be delivered in the hope of blessing. Redemption is to be given, seen, and received. In a word, delivered in the hope of blessing. See what I mean by this. So in verse 9, first Boaz finalizes the redemption. It says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilian and Malon, their sons, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now this declaration formally granted Ruth's marriage request from chapter 3. It made the the marriage official, it's going to happen, as well as it is secured the rest and reward that Naomi and Boaz had prayed for Ruth earlier. Further, it secured Ruth's permanent place among the people of Israel. See, an undercurrent in the book of Ruth is the inclusion of Gentiles or non-Jewish people into God's people. And in this, it actually speaks really strongly against any form of ethnocentrism or racism. But just see, hear this picture and, and realize how far Ruth has come now in the book. From Moabite to foreigner to servant to wife. And we can see one of the major blessings Boaz was offering through redemption here. That it, he says it would prevent people's names from being cut off. So that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. And in a similar way, Jesus' redemption prevents us from being cut off. Cut off from his presence, from his life, and from his people. Instead, even when we die, if we are redeemed, even when we die, our names are written in his book of life, never to be blotted out. All because Jesus was cut off in our place. After Boaz calls the people around him to be witnesses, they agree. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they are clearly praying that the Lord would bless Boaz and Ruth. Redemption is delivered in the hope of blessing. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Rachel and Leah, if you know their stories, were Jacob's or Israel's wives. 
And so Ruth is being compared to the founding mothers of Israel. It's lofty company. And given that they had 12 plus kids between them, this is actually a prayer for good fertility, which would have been quite meaningful to Ruth, a woman who, had, who appears to have struggled with infertility for years prior to this. And then there's the prayer for Boaz's reputation or his renown. May, your, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And finally, they pray that Boaz and Ruth's household would rival Perez's household. Who? It says, may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Tamar was seen as a mother to the tribe of Judah, their tribe, these people's tribe. But notably, Tamar was also a foreigner who was brought into the family. And though her story is actually pretty shady, she also creatively and boldly helped preserve a family line. And Tamar's son Perez became the leading house in the tribe of Judah. So in essence, the crowd is praying in hope that Boaz and Ruth would become prosperous and prominent, like their most well-known ancestors were. Now, a fascinating side note here. Every single prayer in the book of Ruth gets answered. Every prayer that's mentioned. So, in a book where direct intervention by God is only mentioned twice and briefly, and in a book where there are no miracles or supernatural wonders recorded, we still see God is sovereignly at work in the details and he's answering his people's prayers. God answers prayer. Count on it. We'll find out soon how this prayer here gets answered. But if redemption is delivered in the hope of blessing, I think it shows that we ought to hope for it too. We've got to place our hope there. We need to have faith that our prayer for salvation and for redemption will be answered. God wants to bless us. And when we come to him, we are abundantly blessed. And come to Jesus in faith today and in hopes that he will bless you. And I believe that he will. Maybe not with fertility or finances or fame. But he'll give you himself. And that is a far greater blessing anyway. As our story wraps up and we see God bless Boaz and Ruth, we also see God get the credit. So despite the admirable, exemplary, even extraordinary actions of Boaz and Ruth, they don't get the accolades in the end. God does. Look at it, and this is key, because it just might be the point of the whole book, that redemption is the Lord's accomplishment as part of his grand plan. 
Redemption is the Lord's accomplishment more than anyone else's as part of his grand plan. Look at verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So we finally get the wedding that we've been waiting for, this whole love story. But then we very rapidly move from wedding to consummation to pregnancy to birth. And question, did Boaz give Ruth a son? Yes, but no. It says God gave them a son. It says the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The message paraphrases, paraphrase says that she conceived by God's gracious gift. By the way, every single child is a gracious gift from God and don't believe anyone who tells you otherwise. But this is only the second time in the whole book we're told that the Lord directly intervened. Back in chapter 1, it said the Lord visited his people and gave them food, ending the famine. Now in chapter 4, he visits Boaz and Ruth and gives them the other kind of seed. The writer of Ruth wants to leave no doubt here that God is the one who met their needs. And know this today, that it is still God alone who can meet the deepest needs we have in our lives. Not your job, not your family, not your kids, not your friends, not your money, not your possessions. Go to God. And this book is a testament to the kindness and the provision and the providence of the Lord. What began with a famine and three funerals ends with a baby and a wedding and a celebration. Now, whenever a baby is born and the happy new parents make a birth announcement, what does it look like? Maybe they'll, they'll post a, a picture or send out a picture of the baby had one this morning, right? But if anyone else is in the photo with the baby, it's them, the parents, the parents with their baby. Our story today takes an unexpected turn in verse 14, as Boaz and Ruth actually leave the spotlight. They're not in the spotlight any longer. Instead, Naomi takes center stage with the baby. Look at it, verse 14. Says the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter in law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Stop there for now. So just picture the scene. I imagine Ruth giving birth in her new home, but knowing that Naomi is just waiting anxiously to meet the baby too. So she sends, she asks some women who are there, maybe attending the birth, to bring the baby to Naomi as she rests and recovers. So then this gaggle of excited ladies run over to Naomi's house and go, it's a boy! 
And as Naomi takes the baby in her arms, the women burst into praise. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And we can likewise exclaim, right? Blessed be the Lord, who has not left us this day without a Redeemer. Like, redemption is his work from first to last, and he deserves the praise for it. Now, verse 16 seems to say that Naomi becomes a a primary caretaker or guardian for baby Obed. She was his nurse or nanny or daycare provider or foster parent or something of that sort. In some sense, she would raise this child as her own. But notice, as she holds the baby, her hands are full again. They're not empty anymore. Can you imagine Naomi's joy? I like how in chapter 1, Naomi insisted on being called Mara. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. But then, throughout the whole book, the the author utterly refuses to call her Mara. Just keeps calling her Naomi throughout it. Maybe because they knew the end of the story? Okay. Don't call me bitter. Call me overjoyed. (laughs) Call me ecstatic, renewed, pleasant again. But why was Naomi in the spotlight now? Why is it her holding the baby now and not Ruth? Like there's a, a party, we don't see the kid's actual mother. Grandma's got the baby. Well, that's actually kind of normal. <laughs> but why is the story written like this? David Platt suggests that this is meant to show how God brings his people from death to life, from curse to blessing, from bitterness to happiness, from emptiness to fullness, and from despair to hope. Naomi's neighbors definitely recognize this reversal. A son has been born to Naomi. But Obed was born to Ruth, not Naomi. Well, yes, but it might as well have been to both. It was like Naomi, who had lost all her sons, had a son in her home again. Also, legally speaking, Obed was now her heir. Her late husband's heir, that is. So Obed was very much filling the hole left by her sons. And that's another key thing here. Who, as you look at these verses, who is seen as the redeemer for Naomi? You might assume it's Boaz, but it's actually not. Here, the redeemer is the baby. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And all these pronouns here, the he and his, are all referring to the baby. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Obed was the one who would ultimately carry on her family's name. And it also appears that as Naomi aged, 
her and Obed's roles would be reversed, and he would end up caring for her and nourishing her in her old age. He would nourish her, restore her life. It was like he was making Naomi young again, giving her a new lease on life. And all of this is born out of Ruth's devoted kindness, her hesed for her mother-in-law, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now, seven sons would have appeared to be the perfect number of sons in Israel. And in this ancient world, as you know, sons were actually preferred over daughters. So this is quite the tribute, saying Ruth had been even better than seven sons would have been. It's a neat pattern in the book of Ruth of how loving kindness is shown between characters. See, in chapter 1, Ruth shows kindness to Naomi. In chapter 2, Boaz is kind to Ruth. Chapter 3, Ruth shows kindness to Boaz. And in chapter 4, both Boaz first and then Ruth both show kindness to Naomi. But don't miss the underlying point. That God was showing his loving kindness to each one of them through each other. And he uses us in, the, in each other's lives in the same way. Like who do you see that, that God has used to show kindness to you? Who might he be moving you to show kindness to? Even today. Now, it would be totally fitting if the story ended there with that happy ending. But it doesn't. If we, it's like we're in a movie theater, okay, watching this movie, play, great story, watching, and this movie, we're watching through a window as... Naomi rocks Obed to sleep. Just this sweet, serene picture. And the movie ends, the credits roll, we get up to leave, but then there's a post-credit scene. And it's not just some quick superhero fan service. No, this post-credit scene changes how we view the entire story up till now. Look at it. The woman of the neighborhood, verse 17, gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Whoa! Never saw that coming. David? That changes everything. Right? All of a sudden, this simple, small-town, quiet love story becomes a much larger story. It's not just the story of Elimelech and Naomi's family line being preserved. It's the story of the royal line of King David being preserved. It's not just about God providing food and family for Ruth and Naomi. It's about God providentially guiding history to provide a king for his people. It's about, it's not like the prayers that people pray here that Boaz would be renowned, the women's prayer that Obed's name would be renowned were answered in these shocking ways. They weren't just random nobodies, they were David's famed ancestors. Ruth, 
actually becomes the royal great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This actually reveals one of the possible reasons the book was written in the first place. It was to possibly to validate a king's honor and to protect him from potential scandal in his family history. Someone might wonder, like, why did David have a Moabite great-grandmother? Well, let me tell you about Ruth. The book concludes with a brief genealogy, which roots the book of Ruth firmly in history, starting with the aforementioned son of Judah and Tamar, Perez. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, this essentially linked David directly to the line of Judah. And it also showed how Boaz's well-wishers' hopes that his name would be renowned, how they came true. But it's no coincidence that ten generations are listed after the book started with ten years of devastation in Naomi's family. It's also no coincidence that the seventh person in this genealogy is Boaz, place of honor. It's also no coincidence that the first words in the book of Ruth were in the days when the judges ruled, which were the days when there was no king in Israel. And the very last word of the book is David. This passage is actually the first mention of David in the Bible. And this whole story we see has been like part of is something so much greater. The scope is so much grander than we would have ever imagined. God was still king. He was working all along. And we know that this is even truer than the author of Ruth knew. Because this isn't even the end of the story. Grab your Bibles, flip ahead with me to the first chapter of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. It too, it starts with a big long genealogy, which contains some familiar names. We'll jump in at verse 3, where it says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then, if we don't stop there, but keep going, we see Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, many others, and then all all the way down in verse 16, we see in Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So God wasn't just preserving Elimelech's line or even David's line. 
He was preserving the human line of his own son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Ruth is pointing to a far greater king than King David. She's pointing to King Jesus, who has been given the name above all other names. Do you know that besides Mary, there are only four women mentioned in Jesus' family tree? Ruth is one of them. Without God, using this brave, young Moabite woman, Israel would be without its king, and the world would be without its savior and king. God wasn't just kind to to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. He was immeasurably kind to us all. Truly, as we sang, the Lion of Judah and David's root is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. May he receive all that he's due from us who have been redeemed by him. But do you see, did Naomi, Boaz, or Ruth have any clue that this is what God was up to? No. Their story gets woven into the fabric of the golden age of Israel's history. Their story served God's purposes in ways that they couldn't have even dreamed. Their little story of redemption was part of God's grand plan of redemption, but they didn't know any of that while they lived it. Both when times were incredibly hard and when they were gloriously happy, they couldn't see all that God was doing. They had to trust him. And we must do the same. You and I really have no clue how God is going to use us. We don't see how he'll weave our small stories into his grand story of history and redemption. But hear this. If Jesus has reached down and saved you, you're part of that story now. And therefore, therefore, don't be afraid to step out in faith and take risks for the kingdom of Christ. Don't be content frittering your days away on the trivial pursuits of this world. Because God uses the ordinary faithfulness of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that won't just impact today, but they'll reverberate into eternity. So don't Be afraid to step out in faith. Also, don't lose sight of the goodness of God as you enjoy the blessings of this life. He loves you and is so kind to you. Thank him and praise him. Recognize also that he is blessing you so that you can be a blessing to others. Like, don't just bask in God's love story for you and then keep it a secret. Christ has given us, his people, the right and the resources to love others with the gospel. Will we have the resolve 
to look beyond ourselves to those God has placed around us, to proclaim his love story for them, and to offer them a taste of his loving kindness. And finally, don't give in to despair. Don't give in to despair when things are disappointing or seem empty to you right now. Be patient. Cling to your hope. Because there is a Redeemer who will redeem you. John Piper concludes this way. At one level, the message of the book of Ruth is that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. But they do get there. Life is a winding and troubled road. There are rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backward in order to go forward. But all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say the best is yet to come. So, no, you may not see everything. You may not see anything of what God is up to right now. You might be in your chapter one, sitting in the midst of devastation. You might be in the middle of chapters two and three, seeing glimmers of his plan, experiencing the kind daily blessings of the Lord. But one day, we will all be firmly in chapter four. And we'll see it all as we see him. And if you know Jesus, when God writes the final chapter of your story, it will have a happy ending. Guaranteed. You can trust him in the good times. You can trust him in the bad times, even the worst times. Because we know that the best times are yet to come thanks to our Redeemer. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes, open our hearts to you this morning. May we take this hope and cling to it every day, for you know we need it. And may we praise you and give you the glory that you are due. In Jesus' name, amen.